you would, turn back with me in your copies of God's Word to the ninth psalm. The ninth psalm. This evening we take up the entirety of this psalm for our meditation. It has been said that if you were to take the entire canon of Scripture and you were to make that canon into a man, the Psalter would be his heart. And certainly, certainly Richard Sibbs sounded on the right note when he made that analogy. Because, of course, in the Psalter, you and I have the panoply of Christian experience. It becomes a directory, as it were, for for the believer's walk as a pilgrim through this life. Uh, Both those high moments whenever he walks so closely and so sensibly with his God, and, and also those moments, those frequent moments where the Lord seems at a distance. All of that, of course, is contained in the Psalter. But I'd submit to you that not only do we have in the Psalter a directory, a picture of the godly man and all of those various changes in his life, but we also have a guide. A guide that is supposed to come to us, not only giving us a picture of what ought to be, but also showing us as believers how to make proper use of the means of grace to bring ourselves under God's grace into a right spiritual frame. And that way, friend, the scriptures, the Psalter, our text this evening is especially accommodated to our needs. Not only do we find the godly man here, but we find also a guide on how to make use of the means that God has given to us to come to a better spiritual frame. And as we take up this portion of God's word this evening, it should be our prayer that we hear it this way. That in this sense, we would be made doers of the word. This indeed would be a guide to us. Now the frame that we have in view here is given to us really from the first verse. And really verses 1 to 12 really are predominantly that theme, that frame of of heart of praise to God. Verses 1 to 12 very neatly comprise a section of text that concern the praises of God and focus principally on that which is past those things that God has done from the psalmist beforehand, and also those things that God has promised, which the psalmist earnestly and believingly expects. But as you come to verse 13, down to the end of the psalm, you'll notice that there's another very distinct section of the psalm. You see, before the the focus was praise, and the past and the future, But the second section, beginning of verse 13, is now very much focused on petition. And he's very much fixated on the present. In one sense, as you look at these two sections of the single psalm, you might wonder what is the connection between these two. Seemingly, they are so very distinct, so very much unlike. Well, friend, I want you to notice that while they certainly are different, and these two sections are very apparent, you ought to recognize that they are joined together by a link. And that link is what you have given to us in verses 13 and 14. Because in those two verses, what you recognize is these two sections are not two different ideas. The psalmist hasn't changed anything. His focus has remained the same. Because in verse 13, you find the petition, Have mercy upon me, O Lord. And at the beginning of verse 14, you you and I encounter that there's a reason for the petition. That I may show forth all thy praise. 
What you recognize immediately is that this ninth psalm is not divided absolutely in its two sections. Instead, what you find is a man who so longs for the unalloyed, unhindered praises of God, it is upon that basis that he pleads for mercy. In other words, what you find here, and the true spiritual frame that that really runs right through this psalm is, is that the psalmist so longs to worship God that even his pleadings for mercy are subordinated to it and truly made subservient to that principle, that chief desire. He craves God's deliverance so that he may praise more fully and more freely. That's the spiritual frame of Psalm 9, where even the psalmist's cries for mercy are not from a selfish end, but, but ultimately for God's glory. The psalmist has, brought, has been brought to a point spiritually where he can genuinely plead for God's deliverance, but for God's sake, not his. Friend, this psalm is a guide for the believer to take up and and to bring our our own souls under God's grace to that same frame. Because what you find here is the psalmist comes to this petition. He comes to this, this moment in verses 13 and 14 after he's engaged in serious meditation. He begins with praise to God, but but you recognize that he draws, as it were, upon his diary and his Bible to come to that point. In other words, he looks to the past, that which God has wrought in his providence. And then he looks to what God has promised to do for him in the future. And from both of these considerations, he's drawn to praise. He looks to God's providence and to his promises. And this brings him to a point where his praise, even in the midst of duress, flows freely. And that his heart is coaxed to long for even more freedom in the worship of his God. And so our theme this evening is is quite straightforward. It's that God's providences induce his people's praise. God's providences induce his people's praise. And I want us to see this precisely as the psalmist brings this to us. I want us to see this as he meditates on previous providences, on those that are promised, and then at last the inferences that he draws on those present providences which he sees about him. So take, first of all, those previous providences which he makes part of his meditation. Taking here from verse 4, we find that he says, Thou hast maintained my right. And he describes the Lord as the one who is judging right. What you recognize immediately is that David is saying that, that God has maintained his right. Now, before we proceed any further, what we need to recognize here is that there's a distinction between right and position. What I mean by that is somebody could have a right and yet not have the full enjoyment and exercise of that right. Obviously, a king is a wonderful example of this. A king may be a rightful heir to the throne, but through the work of a usurper, he may be taken away from the exercise and enjoyment of his right. The king, in this case, has the right, but not the position. The psalmist here says that God has given him both. The Lord has brought the psalmist to that right, the enjoyment and the exercise of that right, by maintaining him in it. 
What you recognize immediately here is that this then is a prayer, not principally about David himself, but David as he is a servant of God. David can say that God is judging right in maintaining David's right and position. And that means negatively then that David's enemies are God's enemies. Because David's cause is God's cause. In fact, you find that precisely in the very next line. He says, the Lord has rebuked the heathen. The the wicked are those who are in view. Meaning that David here looks at his enemies here, not as his enemies principally, but as the enemies of God. And what does he say? Well, in this spirit that is neither personal nor vindictive, he's saying that he has witnessed God overthrowing the heathen, the wicked, and in mercy and in faithfulness securing his own people. What the psalmist here is doing is he is reflecting on previous experiences that he knows so well where the enemies of God, even those who had directed their malice toward God, sorry, their malice for God toward the psalmist, he recognizes in those moments that God has stood, as it were, and has worked as he has promised. He has demonstrated his faithfulness, and to his people he has demonstrated mercy in the past. But then you notice that the psalmist turns his attention and turns his focus away from the Lord for a moment. He addresses his enemy. He says there, O thou enemy, destructions are come to a perpetual end. And here he is turning to the enemy and he's, as it were, assessing the extent of the devastation that these ones have wrought. And I think one of our forebears quite helpfully paraphrases this text by saying that the psalmist is saying essentially thou O enemy didst seek after nothing but slaughter and the destruction of cities but at length God has shown that he sits in heaven on his throne as judge what the psalmist is doing here is again looking in the past he's saying there came a moment where you enemy of God You came to a point of power and and you wrought all kinds of evil. And it seemed as though you had no end to your power. Your reign of wickedness would be limitless. And then just in that moment, God demonstrated that He still sits on the throne. And in that moment that seemed so bleak, God overturned all. He laid bare His arm and He demonstrated that He is indeed still judge of all the earth. And he does right. What is the psalmist doing? Well, what you recognize here is the psalmist is looking in the past and he's saying, especially in these last two verses, we've considered that that he knows that God has allowed the wicked, as it were, such a length. He's allowed them to come to such a height, as it were. But then he's cut them short. From all of this, what you see is that the godly improve past providences for their present encouragement and praise. Friend, this is a necessary work, what the psalmist is doing here. It's necessary for the Christian to look upon past providences in this way. When they see the overthrow of the wicked, they're to see it in the lens for which the psalmist employs himself. When the believer looks 
back and he sees God's mercy to his own. All of those themes are to induce his worship. Just to give you two other examples in the Psalter, take what you have in Psalm 143. There the psalmist says, My spirit was overwhelmed within me, my heart within me is desolate. But then this, I remember the days of old. I meditate on thy works. I muse on the work of thy hands. Psalm 77, to the same effect. Hath he in anger shut up his tender mercies, asked the psalmist. But I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the works of the Lord. You see, friend, what the psalmist is doing here, meditating on past providences so as to fuel his praise and to undergird his comfort, all of those themes, friend, are not constricted only to this ninth psalm. They form, as it were, what is part and parcel to the Christian's meditation and work. We're not a meditating people, I know. Our society has long ceased to be such a society. But friend, for the believer, what the psalmist is doing here is indispensable. You and I need to be making use of providence, past providences in this way. When we see the wicked foiled, when we see that moment when everything is so bleak and then suddenly the Lord lays bare his arm and delivers his own. Whenever we see the people of God crying out for mercy and then it's applied. And all of these things ought to be used as the psalmist does. To lead us not only to, to encouragement and our trust in the Lord's promises, but also to worship. You see Paul doing that very same thing in Acts 26. He says there speaking, after being beaten no less, he says, having therefore obtained help of God, I continue unto this day witnessing both to small and great. He's not only saying there very plainly that, that it's a simple fact that God's preserving him, enables him to preach in this moment. The meaning in the original is actually a bit more. There, the apostle is saying something like, because I have seen God's faithfulness, I continue to witness. Friend, that ought to be the believer's experience as it is the psalmist's. To make this far more personal, I could ask, friend, have you been delivered from real or imagined dangers? If you have, and certainly you have, these things ought to be remembered by you and ought to fuel your praise. Yes, even those imagined fears, when those don't come to fruition, those kinds of deliverances too should induce our praise. Just remember, friend, what the Lord says to the reprobate. He says to the ungodly, I will choose their delusions and will bring their fears upon them. Friend, even if we're delivered from something that is not actually there, but feared nonetheless, it's only because God has not brought those things to fruition. Only because we have known God's mercy and deliverance. And so, friend, where is his praise? If he has delivered us in so many ways, where is that frame of heart like what we see in the psalm? But he here meditates not only on those providences that have occurred beforehand, but he looks forward to those that are promised. If you look at the eighth verse, 
He says, the Lord shall endure. And of course, he's thinking here of the eternality, the immutability of God. But I want you to notice that he moves very rapidly from that to another theme. He says, the Lord has prepared his throne for judgment. Again, in righteousness, he'll minister judgment to people in uprightness. And here you recognize he's meditating generally on the idea that God will always exercise that which is just. His throne is one of equity. In fact, as you find those words there, that he's prepared his throne for judgment. The sense there is that that our God is not like the deity of the deist. He's not one who's just created things and, and stands aloof from his creatures, sitting upon a throne of absolute serenity, but with no interest in what is taking place among the sons of men. That's not the, that's not the God of Psalm 9. Of course, it's not the God of Scripture. No, this is a God who sits upon his throne, a throne prepared to execute justice, to do his will, which is always right. And from this, you recognize the psalmist here sees the end of evil. And he rejoices in that. But there's something quite specific about this as well. It's not just the general end of evil, but it's the specific mercy that belongs to the godly, from which the psalmist also derives comfort. The Lord here is described as being a refuge for the oppressed. And who are they? Well, friend, I... It's, of course, important for us to say that God is good to all. And that among the sons of men, even among those who are his enemies, you and I are to recognize that the poor, the orphan, and the widow are tenderly cared for. But the psalmist is not here speaking about the general oppressed, impoverished, bereft. He defines who the oppressed are. He says, they that know thy name, thou, Lord, hast not forsaken them that seek thee. The oppressed, chiefly in Psalm 9, the impoverished, chiefly in our text, are the people of God oppressed. The people of God laid low. What you see here is then the psalmist is meditating quite specifically upon the mercies that belong to God's people. That they will know deliverance and salvation. And so, friend, the theme that arrives from these verses is quite straightforward, not terribly unlike the previous. The godly use promised mercies for their present encouragement and praise. The psalmist looks to that which is promised, and from that his praise is fueled. But how can this be? The same psalmist says, If thou, Lord, shouldst mark iniquity, O Lord, who shall stand? Again in Psalm 143, Enter not into judgment with thy servant, for in thy sight shall no man living be justified. There's something of a tension that you might imagine here. Where the psalmist has just elaborated at considerable detail the the equity of God's throne. But then, friend, with any amount of thought about the human condition and the continued indwelling sin among believers... You may ask the question, how could this this throne of equity ever hold forth any comfort to those who are still a compound of dust and sin? Yes, of course, being made new, but still in their flesh dwelling no good thing. Well, friend, the Lord here maintains the psalmist's cause is right, not according to the covenant of works. 
but as the psalmist stands in Christ. What you and I are supposed to recognize here is that the Psalter never holds forth the covenant of works as a means to the mercy of God. And we shouldn't forget that in this ninth psalm. The promised mercy that he rests upon is that which is promised him in Christ. Friend, we ought to keep that in front of us as we sing and as we meditate on these themes. But I want you to notice beyond that, as the psalmist takes hold of these promises that are yea and amen in the Redeemer, the point of this section is he draws present comfort from those promises. The older Reformed scholastics would describe faith as being a timeless thing. Because what they meant by that was that faith is like the hand that can reach past the barrier of the present and can actually enjoy in the present things that have not yet come to pass. That's precisely what the psalmist is doing here. If you remember back to to Genesis uh, 17, when Abraham is confronted once again with the promise that he shall bear a son of Sarah, Abraham laughs, and he doesn't laugh there in a way that is irreverent or unbelieving. The rest of the text bears that out. It was a laughter that came from a present joy, having believed what God has said. It's very unlike the laughter that you find in Sarah in chapter 18. But the point is Abraham drew a present comfort and a present joy from promises that were yet to be fulfilled. Just as our psalmist. And so friend, in, this, in these verses what you recognize here is that you and I must lay hold of the promises in this way. If we are looking to Jesus Christ and only in Him expect any good from God, then, then certainly verse 12 where we're told there explicitly that God hears the cries of the humble, that should only fuel our prayers in the present. These are present promise, these are promises, yes, many of them future, but we are to derive a present encouragement and comfort from them, and those things should presently fuel our worship. But thirdly and finally, I want us to notice that the psalm ends by focusing on present providences. As you come down to verse 15, he describes that which he sees around him. He says, the heathen are sunk down in the pit they made. They are turned into hell. Now what's striking, friend, about this is that the psalmist here is looking at the foiling of the wicked that he sees about him. And you see it described for us twice, where the wicked are described as falling into their own traps. Their own nets take their own feet. As the psalmist meditates on those present realities, he looks at these providences as something like the avant-garde of the final judgment. As a foreshadow of the end. This view this eschatological view of present providences is really what marks this final section of Psalm 9. The psalmist interprets that which he sees about him, and in those things he sees a picture of the end. And it's not just the end of the wicked, 
It's not just their turning into hell that he sees a foreshadow of in the foiling of their engines toward wickedness in this life. But he also notices this, that the needy shall not always be forgotten. Again, the needy there, friend, have been defined for us as being principally the godly. And so what this final section shows us is that the godly use present providences to incite their encouragement and praise. Friend, you and I are supposed to gather from this what you and I are supposed to follow. And what we see in the psalmist here is is making use of what you see around you now as something that shows you what is to come. Again, a, a harbinger, a forerunner of the end. When God's enemies are finally vanquished and his people everlastingly secured and in bliss. What you have here is something like a a picture of a man who's looking through lattice work. He doesn't see the, the fullness of the garden into which he's looking. But through the lattice, he does see its aspects. He can put together a general idea of the garden's shape and its constitution. What the psalmist is doing here with present providences is very much the same. Through the lattice work of the present, he discerns the end, both the destruction of the wicked and the security of God's people. So as we close and we seek to apply this text, I want to submit to you that there is perhaps an objection from verses 13 and 14 that that we need to address One might ask, as we leave those two verses, is the psalmist in this whole of the ninth psalm bartering with God? In other words, should he not praise God regardless of whether he is delivered? Should he not praise God even if it is the Lord's perfect will that the man continue in his state of difficulty? And the answer, of course, emphatically is yes to all of those questions. But he's not bartering with God. Friend, what you and I are supposed to see here is that the psalmist desires this deliverance. And he desires it to the end of praise for two reasons. The first reason is because he recognizes that that God exhibits his glory through delivering his saints. It's a wonderful picture, an uncommon picture, a shocking picture. A picture you don't find, for instance, in the book of nature. A picture where God comes down in his omnipotence, in his faithfulness, in his free grace. And he delivers his own. It's a a unique demonstration of God's wisdom, his power, and his faithfulness. And so the psalmist longs to look back on this work of deliverance and so there extol the glory of the God which he sees worked in his redemption. But there's a second reason, and this is quite pastoral. Something, something I think, friend, that we could often overlook. And that is that the psalmist knows his own infirmity as well. You see, friend, the psalmist often will we'll give forth those cries for mercy 
that are, that are obviously from, from a pinching and overwhelming affliction. But in this ninth psalm, what you find is the psalmist is working himself to a point. A, a point where he has meditated upon the glory of God, the futility of sin, to a point where he can say in earnest he longs only for God to be praised. But friend, he had to work himself there. And at this point, whenever he is praying that the Lord would deliver him so that he may praise, friend, you and I are supposed to recognize here that the psalmist is acknowledging that under these pinching afflictions, his praise is not as full, is not as free from distraction as he would like. And so this earnest cry that you find in these two verses is really, friend, it's a tacit acknowledgement that that the believer should long to be delivered so that their praises are no longer so distracted by terrestrial concerns. Under pinching affliction, friend, it's often the case the believer will strive to overcome those distractions. But friend, so often it's the believer's greatest cry and misery that he finds he fails so often. And so he pleads for deliverance that he might praise more freely. And for our own examination this evening, we ought to ask the question, is this our own frame? Friend, do we so long for the praise of God? Do we so long to praise that we could even say we live to do so? Do we thus exalt in God? To answer those questions, there is something of a litmus test that's provided for us. It's a contrast between the wicked, and the godly. In verse 20, the nations are said to be thus. They are those that need to know that they are themselves but men. It's a striking petition. In fact, I think perhaps we we could too quickly read read over that line. He's saying, in earnest prayer to God, he longs that men would just remember that they are men. What you recognize here is the psalmist sees among the wicked that they are those who live of, they live by, and they live for themselves. But the psalmist, the psalmist in verse 1 says, I will praise thee, O Lord, with my whole heart. What he means by that, friend, well, he means many things. He also means this. That the whole of God's, sorry, that the whole of his heart is given to God's praise and reserved for the praise of no other. God will pray, God will be praised by the psalmist alone. None other will receive the psalmist's worship. The wicked will glory in what is theirs. They'll sacrifice to their own nets, industry, and strength. The psalmist worships, praises only God. Because only God is to be exalted in. And then the psalmist goes on, he says, Thou hast maintained my right. Striking, isn't it? The psalmist doesn't mention the mighty men of David, who are instruments to David's reign. He doesn't mention the multitude of armies that were at his disposal to secure his throne. He doesn't mention his own wisdom and strength. His own piety. 
No, the psalmist looks beyond second causes and he says, God alone has done this. So you have a wonderful contrast where the nations glory in themselves, forget that they are men, whereas the psalmist, he traces all of the good that he has directly to God. The psalmist acknowledges and delights in the fact that God and God alone is to receive praise. And so, friend, the point of examination for ourselves is, do we know that? Do we, with the psalmist, acknowledge God's right and delight in that? But finally, as we close, I said to you that this psalm is a guide. A guide to bring us, under the grace of God, to a like frame. And so what are the steps that we see in the psalm? The first is, friend, you and I see here so wonderfully a picture of how you and I are to make use of providence. Again, this requires meditation. And to bind no man's conscience to anything, not in the word of God, I would encourage journaling to this end. Uh, friend, it's, it's something that, it, that the believer ought to do. If they can't do, do this kind of meditation without writing it down. So as to reflect in a similar way upon what God has done in the past. To reflect on the way God has worked wonderfully, not only in external things, but also in the motions of the soul. Here you and I are supposed to interpret providence in the way the psalmist does. Drawing both from past, promised, and present providences, encouragement, and so many induces to praise. And from that, secondly, you and I are supposed to meditate on the futility of sin, as well as the folly and outrage of pride. That too is a theme that marks the psalm. The psalmist is one who has thought much about the foolishness of sinners and also the foolishness of men who think that they are more than they are. Friend, you and I are supposed to meditate in a similar way. Going from seeing God's works and also seeing the futility of man's rebellion is necessary. But a third step we find in this psalm is also that he makes use of the present and the future judgments of the wicked as a means to exalt in God. Friend, again, this is not supposed to be seen as some kind of personal or vindictive attitude. This flows from a genuine delight in the righteousness of God, a delight in God's justice. But fourthly, friend, what you are to see in the psalm as well is that the psalmist especially makes use of the promises of God toward his people. He meditates on them. He draws present comfort from them. He rests upon them and interprets providence according to them. Friend, that, that's a crucial, in fact, that is the one single thread that, that holds forth the psalm to us as a composition for praise, for comfort for God's people. Friend, we ought to do the same. And as we do, friend, as the Spirit of God makes use of his word to that end, we will find only by experience more and more what the psalmist says in verse 1, that our hearts will certainly and wholeheartedly give themselves to praise, even to the point, friend, where you and I could say, 
that we long to be delivered. We long for mercy, but for his sake. We long to be delivered just, just that we might praise more freely and fully the God who has redeemed us. Amen.